0: Hello, there's only one Fleet Street Fox column this week because of Easter, but uh, on Easter Monday, the Mirror did publish a story that I wrote about the nuclear test veterans uh, In my, wearing my other hat as a news reporter, so there's an audio version of that instead this week. Exclusive, UK officials knew deadly radiation risks of nuclear weapon tests at the time. Servicemen in the UK's nuclear weapons testing programme were exposed to damaging levels of radiation that officials knew could kill them 40 years later. A Mirror investigation has uncovered UK government documents showing those in charge of the testing programme were aware of the serious biological risks facing 22,000 men. The documents show that cancer-inducing radiation doses were labelled SAFE, Kit and equipment was irradiated. Servicemen showed signs of radiation in their urine. And scientists complained about having to observe an unnecessary margin of safety. Alan Owen of the Labrats campaign group said, This is why our fathers died, our mothers miscarried, why our children are suffering today. These experiments were genetically devastating. No court has ever tested the evidence, but the government knew and has lied to us ever since. The cache of almost 1,000 documents shows veterans were expected to have, quote, observable genetic effects up to four decades later. One jaw-dropping paper describes how Land Rover's contaminated radioactive fallout were cleaned using a standard vacuum cleaner, with the filters then shaken and beaten to clear it of toxic dust in a way described as somewhat hazardous. And two decades after John Major's government bought off the Australians with £20 million compensation to clean up contamination, documents show radioactive material was intentionally hidden in the outback in defiance of scientific safety standards. One 1958 document states, If markers are considered necessary, they should not be recognisable as such to the uninitiated, nor should there be a wired enclosure which would attract attention. Other papers show the tests created serious biological risks with bone-seeking fission products which would end up lodged in skeletons or guts of servicemen. They contain evidence of tins, medical supplies and soap absorbing radiation and becoming contaminated on an atomic level. Ex-Royal Engineer Ken McGinley, who founded the British Nuclear Test Veterans Association in 1983, said, the government took more care of the rabbits and guinea pigs they used than the men irradiated alongside them. The animals were studied to find out how much radiation they had absorbed. We weren't. We were second-class guinea pigs. Veterans have complained of cancers and rare medical conditions since the 1980s. Their wives report high rates of miscarriage and their children have been found to have 10 times the usual number of birth defects and are five times more likely to die as infants. A government study revealed in January that test veterans have 3.5 times the expected rate of radiogenic leukaemia, but the Ministry of Defence is still considering its response. Last year, veterans were told there was not enough risk and rigour to the tests to merit a medal by a committee later found to be accepting bogus information from MOD compensation colleagues. But the unearthed papers show that safety limits involve significant amounts of exposure. A dose considered to be a zero risk was equivalent to 30 years of background radiation in just five days, a slight risk was the same as that of 250 years background. Today, scientists believe even this natural radiation may lead to thousands of deaths every year. The documents set a normal working rate greater than most Britons would receive annually and set different decontamination standards for scientists and servicemen, even though they work side by side. Scientists knew at the time that normal background radiation can cause cancers, and that there is no safe dose. Radiation epidemiologist Mark Little said, I'm surprised to see, even back in the 1950s, a statement that a zero risk was equivalent to this low dose. Although the risk is lower, it is most certainly not zero. He added the zero dose daily rate was equivalent to a single CT scan, and studies have shown that repeated scans can triple the rate of brain cancer and leukemia in patients. In defence of the trials programme, the MOD says nuclear veterans were exposed to less radiation at the test than they would have experienced naturally at home due to radon gas in UK soil. Some of the documents show servicemen were in fact exposed to centuries worth of radiation while being ordered to manually collect radioactive samples in Australia. The documents, which have been published in full and can be seen on the website of campaign group Labrats. Rats, detail the use of official leaks to make the public think the tests were safe, while admitting the bombs, quotes, may in time produce bone cancers and possibly leukemia worldwide. One paper from 1955 promises that if one test could go ahead, the UK would seek an international ban on more tests. In fact, it exploded a further 12 weapons, as well as 593 radioactive minor devices, and in 1962 sent Brits to take part in a further 26 US bomb tests. After the tests, traces of radiation were found in servicemen's urine, in human bones, and in the bones and organs of animals throughout the areas they lived and worked in. Blood tests on the men were suggested to prove future medical claims, but today test veterans face a battle to access the results. Some have found proof of blood counts before the tests, but records are missing of those taken after the explosions. Ex-sapper Dave White of Kirkcaldy, Fife, said, My records show blood was taken and examined on August 12, 1958, and the results. There are a further seven columns for updates, but they are blank. I witnessed four bombs after that date and went into ground zero on two occasions. I had further blood taken, but there is no mention of those results. Dave later developed gastric problems, lumps in his groin, and discovered he was sterile. He also says his signature was forged on his medical discharge papers. These documents were classified until 1985 when they were forced open by an Australian Royal Commission into the testing programme. They were studied but not published as part of the final report, then stored at King's College London. In 2006, lawyers acting for the veterans were able to read them as research for a high court case, but they were never used. The MOD instead claimed a three-year time limit on claims, and the lawyers had to change tack. A source at the law firm told The Mirror, we thought we had clear proof of the illnesses were caused by exposure. The MOD didn't bother to argue it. They couldn't. When the Supreme Court finally ruled against the veterans on appeal in 2012, it was without a single judge ever seeing these documents or truly testing the argument. That decision was highly irregular. Searches of the National Archives failed to uncover the papers, but after a list of 967 file numbers was handed to the Mirror, we were able to extract a sample of 20, containing a total of 522 pages. They showed that protective clothing was heavily contaminated. Efforts to decontaminate drinking water failed, and then Prime Minister Anthony Eden lied to his opposite number in Australia about the poisonous yield of the weapons. An M.I.D. spokesman said... We are grateful to all service personnel who participated in the British Nuclear Testing Programme. The protection, health and welfare of those involved in the operations was a vital consideration, as documented by the detailed safety measures and radiobiological monitoring that took place during the operations. If you want to read the documents, you can find them at bombshell. Here is a bonus audio column to mark National Tea Day on Thursday the 21st of April, originally written in 2017. It's National Tea Day. Here's why tea is much better than coffee. The other week, my dad reached for the tea bags and said, you've run out, this is a crisis. Calmly reaching for the new pack in a cupboard and passing it to him, I asked, if it's a crisis when you run out of tea bags, what would it be if North Korea launched a nuclear missile? He replied, oh, that'll be fine, so long as we can still have a cup of tea. To someone not British, this attitude might seem odd. To someone who is, it's an entirely reasonable way of dealing with World War Three. Tea is not just the fuel with which the British Empire was built. It is not just the magic juice which propelled my grandfather and millions of others up the Normandy beaches and across Europe to set the world to rights. It is purely and simply a life-saving, life-enhancing, life-lengthening piece of evolutionary brilliance which has made mankind the dominant species on earth. And if that seems like hyperbole to you, well let me explain. Tea is made from the leaves of the Camellia sinensis plant, usually grown at altitude in tropical climates with high rainfall. For some reason you can also find it in Scotland. All tea comes from the same plants, but they're processed in different ways to produce black tea, green tea, white tea, and things from the twigs and roots, which are, let's face it, an abomination. The method of curing the leaves and pouring boiling water over them to produce a flavoured drink originated in southwest China almost 2,000 years before the birth of Christ. And what did the Chinese achieve after that? Lacquering, silk production, Jade carving, chariots, iron making, astronomy, fractions, magnetism, acupuncture, arithmetic, writing, the compass, weights and measures, a civil service, gunpowder, water power, sugar, porcelain and pie. Coincidence? Let's see. Tea moved overland into Central Asia, the Arabic world and Russia. Dutch traders first shipped it out in 1607 and the first reference to it in England is in 1615. It became fashionable in Germany, France and the Netherlands. After which period, those same bits of Europe had underwent the Enlightenment, a time when religious fervour was abandoned for reason, liberty, progress, tolerance, constitutional government and the separation of church and state. Dunking witches and burning infidels stopped when people sat down for a cup of tea and a natter. ISIS doesn't do tea and it shows. After tea was introduced, Britain's achievements included submarines, steam power, telephones, vaccines, light bulbs, farm machinery, bicycles, television, the Colossus computer, fingerprint classification, the discovery of DNA, IVF, carbon fibre, text messaging, the World Wide Web and a spacecraft capable of picking a fight with Mars. One massive change to civilisation after tea is introduced might be down to hard work. Two could be coincidence. But three... Three is uncanny. It's now thought that a cup of tea could help astronauts survive on Mars. Perhaps it could even give Beagle 2 a reason to get in touch. We still have senseless wars, of course, but seeing as they're mostly American, it's probably coffee to blame. Coffee and tea both contain antioxidants, chemicals which can repair damage to human cells and reduce chances of cancer, dementia and heart disease tea has up to 10 times the amount of polyphenols a kind of antioxidant than fruit and vegetables what luck we happened upon a way of drinking clean water that was also a medicine coffee has more of them than tea but get this it's safe to drink only two cups of coffee a day because it also raises your blood pressure and heart rate tea can be drunk steadily all day long so you end up getting more antioxidants researchers at the university of western australia found the same amount of polyphenols you get in eight cups of tea a day can significantly lower blood pressure. And then there's the ritual. The calming business of filling a kettle, waiting for it to boil, warming the pot, doling out the loose leaf or hunting for tea bags. Arranging the mugs. Dad has to have the biggest one. Mum insists on bone china. The stirring, the tink, tink, tink of pointlessly knocking the tea off the spoon on the side of the cup. Tea calms. Tea is time off is thinking, chatting, socialising. You don't get that with coffee. That speeds things up, makes you jittery, gives you a high. It's a double shot, soy, half fat, skinny, macchiato, is what it is. The leaves of Camellia sinensis also contain an amino acid called L-theanine, which boosts alpha wave activity in our brains. That reduces stress, increases attention and leads to a state of relaxed concentration or, and I quote, quiet alertness, which counteracts the effects of caffeine in the drink. The only way you can get L-theanine in your diet is from tea. Picture your nation's leader, their finger poised over the nuclear button. Would you rather they just had a cup of coffee or a cup of tea? Tea civilises, tea unites, tea makes us happier, calmer, better at thinking, and most of us can't get through the day without one. Years ago, I was on a job in Ghana and all the hotel had was coffee, which I hate unless it's the Irish sort and even then I have to be drunk. On the third morning, the photographer said to me, stuff work. I'm taking you to get some tea bags. You're unbearable. It was true. I had a thumping headache. Nothing was right. And I was in a foul mood. We found a supermarket, tracked down a version of Earl Grey, my bag of choice, and in delight carried it high to the nearest kettle. How's that? Asked the snapper anxiously. Better? I looked at the pack. It was Ruibos tea, made from an entirely different plant grown in South Africa. It's wrong, I said. It's like waiting at the airport to meet a loved one. You rush into their arms and they turn to mist. It's empty. The snapper sighed. Bugger, he said. I've carried twinings in my bag ever since. I'm not enduring that again. I've had thick black espresso-style shots of super-sweet tea in North Africa. I've insisted on Earl Grey, brewed in a billy can in Botswana. I've tried my best to explain things to Americans. And it seems to me the best explanation for why Britain conquered an empire was the desire to ensure that everyone everywhere knew how to make it properly. You don't put lemon in it. I don't care what the Queen says. You don't stick greenery in it. Sod the picture on the packaging. And you don't put sugar in unless all you want to taste is sugar. You always use fresh water because tea needs the oxygen in it for the flavour to develop. You always boil the water because that's how the goodness is drawn out of the leaves. You need china because that's how you remember what tea has done. And you leave it to brew for two to five minutes depending on your preference. When pouring from a pot the milk goes in first to prevent its scalding and when making it in the cup with a bag the milk goes in last because we are not Philistines. You do not spray health and safety certified bath water onto a bag in a plastic-coated piece of cardboard, slosh the milk in immediately, then charge me three quid for the privilege, foolish barista. And yes, I want you to do it again because this is an abomination. It doesn't matter how you make coffee, it'll always taste like hot dirt. Yes, I can hear you say. But World War III, really? Tea not only makes nuclear Armageddon less likely especially if Donald Trump starts drinking it rather than his who's a big boy den milkshakes. But if you survive and find yourself in a state of shock, it could save your life. Shock can give you a rapid pulse, dizziness, fainting, a drop in body temperature, low blood pressure, and in extreme cases, cell damage and ultimately death. A warm drink with two or three sugars in it, even if you don't normally have sugar, will warm you up, sharpen your responses, up your blood sugar, and give your internal organs something else to do rather than panic. In a car crash? Have a cup of tea. Find your spouse balls deep in your best friend? Brew a cup. Fear immediate annihilation? Pop the kettle on, why don't you? It might not stop it, but both you and your brain will be better at dealing with it. And if you can make a cupper, then your face probably isn't melting, which is why World War III will be fine if you can still have a proper cup of tea. This is the Fleet Street Fox column for Friday, April the 22nd, 2022. Boris Sumo wrestles Piers Morgan and swings with Prince Harry in the Dead Cat Olympics. Boris Johnson is feeling the heat, not just because he's in India and it's 38 degrees centigrade in the shade, but because he can smell the sulphur of hell's ovens and hear the roasting tin being prepared for him from 4,000 miles away. The lockdown parties in number 10 left him with a hangover that only gets worse. The headache grows, the tremors increase, the sick feeling in the pit of a premier's stomach goes from a niggle to a gurgle to a lurch every time he hears Pippa Crera is on the phone. Most scandals fade, they affect comparatively small numbers of people and the rapid slaughter of a sacrificial lamb cures most of them. It is possible to spin your way out. The police are giving him a fortnight off from talking about fines, but the journalists aren't. The Tories are arguing about Christian forgiveness and whether they have any. Spoiler, nope. And the Parliamentary Privileges Committee, which his party has refused to shield him from, won't report back until perhaps the autumn. That means this Prime Minister, who is about as likely to bow out gracefully as Donald Trump on a sunny delight high, has at best guessed five months or more in the Partygate torture chamber. And he's determined he will not be in there alone or forever. As he wrote himself in 2013, when the facts are overwhelmingly against you, it's time for a distraction. There's one thing that's absolutely certain about throwing a dead cat on the dining room table, and I don't mean that people will be outraged, alarmed, disgusted, he wrote. That's true, but irrelevant. The key point, says my Australian friend, is that everyone will shout, geez mate, there's a dead cat on the table. In other words, they'll be talking about the dead cat The thing you want them to talk about, and they will not be talking about the issue that's been causing you so much grief. The trouble is, most of the dead cats have already been spaffed up the wall. Asylum seekers are being sent to a country which is only slightly better than Putin's Russia, according to the Human Freedom Index. He's found himself a lovely war, he's blamed the EU for problems with Northern Ireland which go back to Prince John, and he's picked a fight with the Archbishop of Canterbury. So he and his advisors are gonna have to step it up for the next few months prepare yourself dear reader for the uk dead cat chucking champion to prance about in a leotard at the transgender rhythmic gymnastics captain the cut benefits bobsleigh team and leak that he's a three times a night love machine in the toe curling rink that won't be enough when the party polaroids drop so brace brace for the PM preparing to sumo-wrestle Piers Morgan in a Saturday night ITV battle of the egos, go crypto-fascist figure skating with Marine Le Pen and start whiff-waffing with Madonna in a corset and lace thong. In short, he'll do whatever it takes, with any passing guarantor of headlines about something, anything other than parties. The ongoing horror about Partygate, which unlike most scandals involves millions of people and lots of death, means that every time a dead cat is thrown on the table, shaved, skinned, eaten and ceremonially burnt to hold our attention, it will arise again like a phoenix from the ashes. One day it might assume the form of a vengeful Allegra Stratton. Another, it'll look like a post reshuffle pretty Patel out to chew the kneecaps off whoever she hates today. This PM may actually want to lose the local elections, because it delivers a good month of political analysis, predictions of doom, and pretending to overhaul the government by detwatting the cabinet. He'll look forward to summer recess when his backbenchers are on holiday and unable to conspire. Scatter that little lot with some more fines, a war that looks likely to drag on until winter, maybe some naked caving with Nicolas Cage, and there's a good chance that more people will be bored of hearing about the parties. Then cue autumn, cue COVID, and cue committee. Whether it finds Johnson knowingly misled Parliament or not, at that point, there'll be a little over two years until the next election and limited time to replace him. There are few in his cabinet who aren't electoral cyanide and so much infighting on the backbenches it'd be like asking a bag of cats to pick a leader. That may all play well for Keir Starmer, who's treating this as a marathon, not a sprint, and is steadily making up ground behind a PM who keeps stopping to perform for the crowd and the PM's political weakness will put him at the mercy of all those who want something from him, whether those causes are noble or not. There are 400 million cats in the world, but even if Johnson catches, kills, and poses for his official photographer next to the death rows of every last one of them, it will not let someone hold the hand of a dead loved one. It does not restore a grandparent, or a birthday party, or allow hugs at a funeral. This scandal is like the Olympic flame. It burns with a fire that will never go out. The British public require the sacrifice of just one shaggy old ram. And until that happens, the best he and Labour can hope for is a stay of execution.